0: This week on Hacker and the Fed, the FBI's Operation Duck Hunt takes down a ransomware botnet. We disclose the secret weapon hackers use for doxing. The New York City subway system allows its users to be tracked online. And we answer listeners' questions about leaving the FBI, getting jobs in cybersecurity, and Hector's thoughts on the hacking group Anonymous.
1: Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks that caused up to $50
0: million in damages, a life in the shadows, cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. Come to Naxo.com to find us. Joined as always by Hector Monsegur, friend and podcast co-host. Hector was a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collide in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert.
1: Hector, how are you? Ah, oh, I'm doing great. That was a fantastic intro. I love your energy, my friends. Yeah. Well,
0: I think we I think we should change our intro a little bit, maybe or we'll add to it or spice it up some in October for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Let's uh let's make it. So anybody write into us. Questions at hackerinthefed.com. Let us know how we could spice it up a little bit if they're good at that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say that um, I, any suggestions you guys have, I would love to hear, and we can update our intros for sure. Maybe that'll
0: be one of our things. We'll you give away to uh, we'll give away a, a Hacker in the Fed T-shirt to the best uh, best write up, the one that we like the best, um, or we'll let somebody else judge, so we're not the bad guys. Uh, spice up our intro if they want to make it a little better.
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. And you know, by the way, you know, I, I had a question from someone that reached out to us. And they're like, hey, every time you know um, Chris does the, in- uh, the the introduction, he says you're a red teamer. What exactly does that mean? So if you don't mind, Chris, I'll give a quick twenty second breakdown as to what that is. Go
0: deeper if you need to.
1: All right, I like that. So if you if you are on the path to offensive security, um, you probably will hear these terms like penetration test or pen tester. You might hear about red teams, purple teams, red teaming, uh, or red teamer. Sorry. Um, so. I kind of want to give you guys what, you know, kind of a breakdown as to what that is. And I know like 80% of you know already know the answer. But for the other 20% that don't know, here's just a quick breakdown. I'll make it very simple for you guys. All right. So let's break it down in terms of categories. So when we look at it uh, from the objective side of things, I would say like the primary objective for like a pen tester is to identify vulnerabilities. Um, and that could be in the systems, networks, applications, et cetera. And, they, you know, pen testers typically work in a defined scope. It's a very specific scope. And, of course, as they're identifying vulnerabilities, they're also validating those vulnerabilities, meaning they want to make sure that by the time you get your report, that what's in that report is free of, like, false positives, because that's going to cost you money as an organization. If you get back a report full of false positives or vulnerabilities that are not legitimate, then it's going to take you time and resources to actually fix things or you know, reach a point where you realize, well, wait, this is not even a, 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 a security vulnerability. Why am I even looking at this? Why am I dealing with this? Oh, that came from our pen testing report. Okay, so the, the pen tester screwed up here. All right. Now, the pen tester will definitely try to break into or utilize a proof of concept. Uh, and I'm sorry, by the way, I went beyond 20 seconds. I'm sorry, Chris. Um, but the pen tester will try to validate and, and confirm that the vulnerability is, in fact, exploitable or is a legitimate issue. Uh, Red Team is very close. They will still do the pen test, right? They they still will do the vulnerability scan. But uh, in terms of objective, it's it's much different. Uh, Their path is really to emulate a real-world attacker or adversary. Um, And there's also other things like testing the organization's detection and response capabilities. That's very important. They also have a broader scope. So for a pen tester, if you're doing, like, let's say, a black box assessment, the customer might tell you, hey, here's 200 IPs that we know about. Uh, focus on these 200 and, and you can only work between nine to five. On a red team perspective, you're emulating an adversary. So there is really no time limit and there is no real scope. The customer might even tell you, hey, we want you to break into contoso.com. That's our domain. That's it. We're done. Figure out the rest, right? Um, now, in terms of like methodology, okay? And I'm going to wrap this up real quick, uh, uh, Chris. In terms of methodology... Um, The pen tester will probably follow a very structured methodology, and the same could apply to a red teamer as well. Um, This could deal with, like, uh, uh, discovery, reconnaissance, information gathering, enumeration, identification, validation. You get it. And the red teamer will do the same, but um, the red teamer will also use more of an adversarial approach, you know, emulating tactics, techniques, and procedures that real-world attackers are using. Um, this could include things like multi-stage attacks, uh, lateral movements, uh, or even using like zero days or, or, or stealthy techniques or stealthy, um, um, uh, methods to, to compromise the system and move around. So those are the main differences. So when Chris calls me a red teamer, um, he's pretty much saying, Hey, Hector's a red teamer, a pen tester and all that. Um, but his, his emphasis is, is uh, objective based, meaning that he, he targets systems, um, in a way to try to emulate what an adversary would do in a real world campaign. So I hope that makes sense. I know I went way beyond 20 seconds. I apologize, but I hope I answered that person's question.
0: So yeah, guys, if you guys want to win a hacker in the fed t-shirt, just write up a new introduction for us that uh, doesn't include the word red teamer. So Hector doesn't have to talk so long again. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) No, I loved it. It was good. It was good. I was going to ask a question about blue teamer, but we'll save that for next week. Yeah, it's basically the same thing, but on the defense. Oh, he said it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Now you ruined next week's episode. My bad. (laughs) So, how was your week? Did you have a good time?
1: I had a great time. I uh, it was busy. Yeah, but I got to meet with a lot of folks. I got to like set up some engagements. Um, I'm doing. uh, I'm I'm doing some traveling soon. I'm doing some like uh, engagements for um, like speaking engagements for like an educational organization. So, like, it's not like a paid engagement, but it's, like, very cool. I get to, like, intermingle with students and, um, you know, try to share some of my knowledge. Um, So, I will be traveling soon. Um, My schedule might be a little crazy over the next couple weeks. But um, I always love, like, giving back to the community, especially when it comes back to, like, education. So, I'm down with it. You know, that's kind of where I'm at. So, that's kind of what I've been doing, kind of scheduling things, organizing, and preparing for that. Oh, very
0: nice. That sounds good. I had a lot of interaction with listeners this week. Uh, I had a DEA yeah. agent reached out to me just to thank us for doing our show. Um, I had a, a lawyer uh, reach no out way. to me about, uh, he listens to the show and uh, maybe we're going to work together in the near future. Um, awesome. Yeah, so it's it's been good. It was a good week for me too. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I'm, I'm so we're recording this on the Friday night before the long weekend, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the long weekend. I know, if you, as you're oh, listening yeah. to this, uh, you already had your long weekend, um, mm-hmm. but but it'll be
1: good. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, no, I got to say that um, you know what? Like, listen, I've I've come to the point, Chris, that um, you know, I've I've come to really appreciate myself. You well, know? I appreciate you too. No, I appreciate you. But, you know, the thing is, is like sometimes we take ourselves for granted, you know, and we overwork and we put ourselves through a whole bunch of things. And especially you and I, I know you and I are very family oriented. And sometimes that's a lot of pressure on our shoulders. We try to do a lot and we try to be providers and all that. And it's, sometimes it's OK to sit down one day for an hour, take time, take time to yourself and say, you know, what it's OK. You know, this is I'm, I'm doing what, what makes me happy and I'm happy to be here. So that's kind of where I'm at. My vibe is very positive, and I've been trying to keep that vibe going.
0: Yeah, no, I do the same. I and mean, this week was real big for me, uh, like just uh, you know how how blessed I've been, how lucky I am to be where I am, and 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 you know the the things I have. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of that. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's getting older, and you find that focus, but but uh, mm-hmm. it's good. Uh, I think uh, since the last we spoke, I think I, I took my son off to college. Uh, wow, look at that. Yeah, he's doing his thing and he's 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 really thriving and he seems to enjoy it and you know I was jealous of him. He had on, on Thursday, he had uh his class schedule was 8 to 8:50 8. and that was it. Um yeah. wow, I realized okay. how much I miss college. <laughs>
1: <laughs> look at that, bro. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> so, it's good. It's good. So, yeah, you 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 know, family's good. Uh a little, you know, missing him have not having around the house, but uh but but good for him for 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 doing his thing.
1: Yeah, big shout out to him, and I wish him nothing but success. I know that he's gonna build a beautiful path and be some, have some great experiences hopefully out there. So I'm looking forward to updates here and there as he kind of moves forward.
0: Yeah, I appreciate. it. Yeah, he's he's, uh, he's actually taking a Python class too, so I'm excited to see Ooh. what he can he can do with that.
1: Oh man, he's gonna start hacking the Gibson soon. You know what that means? <laughs> <laughs> he better not. Well, that reminds me of uh, like what's what's the guy's name? Um, the guy that. Um, Give me a second. This is awesome. Uh, so the guy that created, remember the Morris Worm back in the oh, days? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: It,
1: it's so funny because you know it was uh, it was created by a very smart guy. He was like, it's like a genius young man at the time. Super smart guy, Robert Morris. This was back in '88, and it's funny because he had like this this well esteemed father. Like his father was like very well known and. Um, You know, I I could imagine the conversation that comes back after, like, the morse worm, you know, deployed. And then, you know, you got the FBI knocking on the door like, yeah, uh, uh, we need to speak to your son. I wonder, like, what the father said. Or rather, I wish it was a fly on on the wall for that conversation. Like, oh, my God. You had everything going for you. You had to make this one goofy mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I uh, I was... My squad in New York uh, arrested a guy. Mm -hmm. He was uh, a Russian guy who actually made the Gozi software. I don't know if you remember that. There's a banking Trojan back in the day. Uh, His dad, he proclaimed, and I I don't really know this, that his dad was like the um, kind of like the Bon Jovi of Russia. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so it kind of probably fits that same story where it's, uh, you know, so
1: why would he do this? We're good. Exactly.
0: Exactly. (laughs) But. You know, oh, sometimes, you know, I'm sure, you know, Paris Hilton's dad wonders how she became who she is, <laughs> but same thing. Fags. Well, speaking of FBI, first thing, we're going to give praise to the FBI and their, their international partners for the takedown of the QuackBot. Botnet. Oh, nice! Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the Quackbot botnet?
1: That group, uh, the people that have been involved in Quackbot, you know, they've been around for quite some time. This is not a new organization. They didn't start last week. You know, um, they've been deploying remote access trojans or tools for many, many years, um, and they basically became a yeah, cyber criminal organization. Well, what's they a remote started-
0: access trojan first?
1: Yeah, well, a remote access tool or Trojan is basically a piece of software that once it runs in your system, um, it, it could have a multitude of objectives, right? It could sit there and just collect your credit card information, um, or it could also sit there and connect you into a global botnet, which is what these guys did here. But at least what that's what most of the software did. Um, and so, you know, over the years, as they became more sophisticated and they started gaining more information, more access... They started to create some more sophisticated infrastructure, which, by the way, the FBI took down. And we're going to get into the details shortly, but it was pretty fascinating to see how they had like a, like a multi-tiered system in place. They had like reverse proxying uh, for communications between affected computers and, um, and their command and control centers. Like pretty, pretty cool stuff if you look at it from a technical perspective. Um, it just sucks that they were part of you know, such a shady uh, a background. And What exactly is a botnet, too?
0: We we should probably define that for the audience.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I had to cough for a moment. Um, so, a botnet is is, is a very interesting piece of technology. Um, imagine a scenario where you have a home office network, and in your home office network, you have four computers, one for each family member. Um, each computer's, you know, they're 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 pretty solid. They have good uh, CPU and and, and RAM. Uh, specifications. Um, but, you know, when it comes to gaming, um, maybe that one computer that you have, uh, you know, doesn't have a integrated GPU or or anything that, that would help you with FPS or frames per second or, or, or provide you a good gaming experience. Now, imagine a scenario where you're able to connect the four computers in your home uh, to give you more processing power to deal with those frames and be able to do something very cool with that and maybe have a good gaming session. Now, similar concept, you know, if you take 100,000 infected computers and you connect them together to one botnet, you could actually collect, one, a ton of information. uh, But two, you also have uh, a lot of processing power. So you could use that, well, not just processing, but power in general. Um, You have the collective power of 100,000 computers at that point. So if you wanted to do, like, distributed denial of service, um, you would probably be pretty effective at that. Um, If you wanted to sit there and use that network of 100 infected computers, 100,000 infected computers... As like a proxy network, so you could do spam and hack around the world from different residential IPs. You could do that as well. So that's really what a botnet is: it interconnects infected computers with each other to be abused by a central operator.
0: The FBI found this quackbot that had been, like you said, had been operating for a while, and they started an operation called, uh, well named, operation, <laughs> operation Duck Hunt. Great game. Uh, yep. Yeah. so it was a U.S.-led financial and technical distribution of the botnet infrastructure, and the FBI and their international po- partners seized infrastructure throughout the United States and Europe. Um, and the Justice Department announced they seized uh, 8.6 million dollars in cryptocurrency from these guys. So, and then w- let's talk about how the FBI gained control of the system. So, um, I'll be—they—they they, they talked about you know they've done this before, and some of them. Um, I will tell you that my partner and I, you know, the you Milan, you remember Milan, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were case agents on a thing called Operation Ghost Click. People can read about that it was in 2011. That was a group of Estonians that took over people's DNS settings. So they had DNS servers. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So it was all the whole big, like, will the internet stop working when we took it over? Um, and so we kind of did the same thing. We took over their DNS servers, their, their malicious DNS servers, and we set up FBI infrastructure um, for two reasons one it allowed the victim computers to keep using the internet uh and two it allowed us to collect the ip addresses of the infected computers Mm. and then our partners they were able to connect to those computers and offer, "Hey, a click on here if you want to take the virus out of your computer, or take the malware off your computer." So the FBI has been doing this for at least since 2011. I don't know; they probably did it in a group before us. We didn't invent this, but you know, in this QuackBot in the Operation Duck Hunt, it seems like they did the, the sort of the same thing, but it was a little bit more sophisticated.
1: Oh yeah, no, they, they were definitely these guys. Definitely had enough time to experiment and play with different infrastructure. Um, configurations and do some things to try to to try to avoid detection. But I before I get into the technical bits here, can I ask you a question on that, on that operation that you had? Sure. Um, and it's more of a general question, not specific to uh, operation Ghost Click. So what if, and this is just a this is a random ass question, bro. But what if, okay, so you know, you, you do that again, and now you have the DNS access to, you know, 100,000 infected computers from from victims, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what if you guys are doing that and then you see that one victim has a lot of traffic to like a, a known child porn site? Can you engage that into a case or is that hands off? Part of
0: our thing was that we were not going to monitor that traffic. Um, I'm sure, yes, you could have. We could have seen, you know, where people were going with from their infected computers. But, you know, we didn't do it. And I think we turned it over. I think we sent a lot of it, you know, rerouted the traffic to... Uh, 4.4.4.4 4. 4. 4. 4 and 8.8.8.8, 8. 8. 8. 8, which is are Google's DNS servers for those people. That's the IP address of them. Um, if you guys need a DNS server that you know is you know is gonna be pretty good, the both of those are pretty good to point your machines to. But the other, the other thing, let's let's go down the path that we did monitor that traffic. And one of the big defenses for people that do and they they don't call it child porn anymore. It's called CSAM. As I'll tell you, my own personal feelings is, you know, naked kids or kids having sexual interactions with adults or people is not pornography. Um, So it's, you know, it's a a negative connotation. So CCM pictures uh, is what we're talking about here. Um, A lot of those offenses say, you know, oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't with me. It wasn't me. So we're going after a guy now and we know we can have to, you know, say in court that we knew that this person was doing this and the computer was infected with malware. So it makes the case much, much harder, you know, especially since the FBI knows it's infected. And then you, that's how you started your case.
1: Yeah, I could imagine for, from your perspective, it can be complicated, especially if you run into to something that looks like, you know, the victim might be a, you know, perpetrator in that, in that regard. Yeah. Um, and then you're like, well, there's, the machines are infected in the first place. So that's probably going to be a... difficult case to deal with but wow that's interesting stuff nonetheless man yeah
0: but you know even from the privacy perspective we weren't going to push that boundary uh and then if we did you know it's just not it wouldn't be worth it as far as you know the 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 negative side of things
1: well i'm sure once they got the pop-up screen from the fbi they were freaking out anyway (laughs)
0: So (laughs) i'm sure
1: but yeah but going back to these guys here the group and the infrastructure um it seems like they had i mean judging by the scale of infection here, something like 700,000 approximate devices were infected. The total number is likely in the millions. So these guys had a broad coverage. Um, And what makes that interesting for any partner to that attacker group or that adversary group um, is that you could theoretically, I mean, we're talking about 700,000 devices. You have to assume that at least one of these people, one of these victims Probably works in the government or works at a, at a bank. Maybe they're an executive. So, the botnet, aside, aside from collecting credit card information or giving out, uh, you know, residential access to to bad actors for for you know shady things, um, it also opened the potential for being an access point or an initial access point for corporate networks. So yeah, this was uh, this takedown was definitely solid, and you know I'm sure that. Um, you know, that the FAA were effective in shutting down that infrastructure. Now, my only concern here, I'm not sure if I read this. Maybe you have the details on, on your side. Maybe you found it, Chris. But I'm not sure if they actually took any of these these guys down. Um, so if that's the case, maybe maybe those guys could kind of re-up their infrastructure. Or you do you think at this point they'll be scared scared to death and just kind of move on.
0: Yeah. I didn't read about any arrests that went along with this. Um, so maybe not, uh, you know, maybe they're all in Russia and they can't be touched right now. Good on them for they can't travel. Uh, they got a lot of their money. I mean, just the FBI, you know, so what they did, they retracted the botnet's network traffic to government and servers. conservers, um, and then part of those servers uh, had an FBI built-in uninstaller just like we did in GhostClick. And then the FBI, they began replacing the QuackBots control modules on August 25th. So I kind of looked at that. For some reason in the article, it said it happened on August 25th at um, 7.27 p.m. in D.C. Um, I tried to figure out why. And, and the only thing I could think of is that is like the lowest end of activity on the administrative side maybe that's when they figured those guys would be in bed um which would put them you know russia time in the middle of the night um i don't know I, I, as we I read the article that's where my mind goes trying to figure out why the fbi did it at such a strange time on a monday night at 7 30 east coast time
1: yeah no that's that's uh, that's a good point i mean just even looking at like um yeah even looking at like the 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 um like a like a time scale. We're looking at I'm looking at a Russian a Russian clock right now and I'll put in seven uh twenty seven PM Eastern time at for them is yes, yeah, it's, it's middle of the night. So yeah, it, it would it could definitely be um that could be the reason. I think that's a good point. I I didn't even think about that when I read the article.
0: Yeah, I, that's where my mind goes on these things. Why I mean they, they certainly did it at seven thirty, whatever, close to whatever seven o'clock, seven thirty, uh for a reason, uh operationally, but, but I I
1: don't know what. Yeah.
0: Wow. Interesting. Okay. So good stuff. Yeah. No. And, and kudos to the FBI for doing this. Uh, you know, I, I love to see these things. You know, uh, and it's done right. You know, so if you guys seen anything strange in the FBI pop ups, you know, again, don't click on things. Do a little research. Figure out what's going on and make sure. the right thing. You know, because you know when something like this happens, you know, bad guys key on it too, um, and mm-hmm. they'll start sending out emails that say, you know, Operation Duck Hunt or something like that do some research before you click on anything from anybody, including what you think is the FBI. Huh. Because uh, I think the way the FBI did this, the, you you probably won't get an email about it. So, well, I can tell you you're not going to get an email about it. That's not how it works. <laughs> so your computer will be sent to a certain place and automatically uh, giving control back. So the auto installer mm-hmm. doesn't delete or re, uh, remediate any of the malware, but it allows the Not to be connected again with an infection, so you know the you know the FBI is you know will find your IP address and contact you most likely by mail. Mm. So, but they'll probably have some agents visit some victims because you'll need it for we'll need it for court. You'll need uh, victim impact statements.
1: Yeah, I could imagine, especially if whatever um, whatever like uh, um, office FBI office is running the show, right? and there's victims in their city. I mean, I can imagine they would just like walk down the block and knock on the victim's door.
0: I I just again, I I didn't see what FBI off is running it, but um yeah. I was guessed just because they said DC, maybe it was mm. in DC, but um yeah. why that time zone and that all that was prominent in the article. I don't know. Sure, sure. So,
1: yeah, I mean, that was a great story. I've seen it blow up on InfoSec Twitter. I see some other um, you know, popular like threat intel or malware research Twitter feeds like uh, VX Underground big yeah. reference to it, um, but yeah, no, great story. I'm glad we covered this. And yeah, covered
0: and it, so, so one point I wanted to bring up, Hector, is that you yeah. know this botnet was used for 40 different ransomware attacks in the last 18 wow. months, and generating mm-hmm. 58 million dollars in ransom payments. Yeah, remember last week when we were talking to that black hat who wants to become mm-hmm. a white hat, and you know the FBI yeah. doesn't care what I'm doing and won't care mm-hmm. what I'm going after. Yeah, you know if he used this infrastructure to deploy any of the botnets or, or the ransomware um you know ah, now he's wow. gonna care um you know it's kind of strange this came out right after you know you know let's say he That's was renting point. this stuff so you know while you know you think you're not attacking u.s infrastructure maybe you're using a botnet that you know the the fbi does care about and now your mm. ip's tied up into you know the administrative panels of this botnet
1: yeah yeah i mean you're so, part of the conspiracy now right so yeah wow so. That's a very good point, and I, and I hope that uh, that person is listening to the story, and I'm sure they've already looked into the story because it's been out for like a couple of days now, um. But yeah, this it's very interesting to see how, um. There's a big point, I guess. His main question from that from last week was, um. Well, if I'm at a certain place that's not too friendly with the United States or vice versa, and I'm doing engagements against countries or organizations that are not in the U.S., why would the U.S. care? Well, you brought up a very good example here. That if you're using infrastructure used in a global massive campaign, and the FBI spearheading a, a um, you know an operation against that campaign, then yes, now you're part of it. Now you have to deal with the consequences, assuming they identify who the operators are. So, um, good stuff there.
0: Fall is back and the kids are back in school. If your life is getting as busy as mine, you can kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part, and you get to take all the credit. My wife and I are thankful for HelloFresh's support in managing our nightly meals. The time HelloFresh saves us in meal planning, shopping, and cooking lets us spend more time at the dinner table with our kids. And our kids love the meals. A new season calls for new meals and HelloFresh has a fresh fall lineup of delicious dinners and more to choose from. Take your pick from 40 weekly recipes that suits your lifestyle from veggie to family friendly to fit and wholesome. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 50HATF for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. That's right. Hacker and the Fed listeners get 50% 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. For this deal, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 50HATF. Supporting our sponsors really supports the show. We love HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. The secret weapon hackers can use to dox nearly anyone in America for $15. $15, Hector, and we can get anybody's dox.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, for many years, we've, you and I have discussed the problem with, like, data brokers and data aggregation. Um, and then, of course, all the different breaches we've seen over the years. What, you know, a lot of what these hackers do is they, they just aggregate this data or a data broker will sell access to this data. And, um, it seems like these guys basically automated the process to look anybody up for a small price. I mean, that's, that's insane, but that's just the reality of where we at today. Yeah. So
0: it looks like, and again, I, you know, talk about the United States cause that's where I worked most of my cases sure. and have all that stuff. So, um, if you have credit cards here in the United States, we have credit bureaus where you have to provide your personal information. Well, hackers have found their way to get the information out of credit bureaus. So if you don't want to have a credit card, uh, it's really kind of hard living without a credit card. I don't know how you would do stuff. Can can you buy stuff on Amazon without a credit card? Like, Can you connect it directly to your bank? Yeah, you can
1: actually use use a check, but I think it's, it's a very delayed process. Oh.
0: No, there goes the convenience of it, but you know, even things like having an Easy Pass and things like that. You know, And it, for those that don't know, an Easy Pass is a, a an electronic device that we put in our cars here on the East Coast, at least, that allows us to like kind of just drive through tolls. Um, you don't have to stop and hand somebody money and get change and all that, so you know, really slow you down when you're traveling.
1: It's tough to live in society now, um, especially if you're connected in somewhere. I mean, you put up a good example. You have a you have a credit card, you have a banking um, account somewhere. Um, you have to read the fine print. You have to read the privacy policy you know, in terms of conditions. They tell you right off the bat, we may sell your information to uh, third-party brokers or we might send you information to credit bureaus, et cetera. Um, and the problem with that is that if those credit bureaus have security issues and or um, have some sort of relationship with some sort of data broker or aggregator, um, and those guys have security issues or those guys are participating in some shady practice – now, you know, we are vulnerable to that, right? We're vulnerable to a stalker wanting to pull your docs or pull your personal information and find out where you live and where you're from. Um, it, I'm not a fan of this at all. In fact, I, it, it really upsets me that, um, that this is even a thing. Right?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we're, they're talking for, they're, they're selling for $15 in bitcoins on, on Telegram. And I'm not trying to tell you where to commit crime, but if you give them uh, a name and the state that you believe the person into, they can pull out every address that person's ever lived in the United States, all the way back to their college dorm, name uh, with the birth year of their relatives, um, mobile phone numbers, personal email accounts. Um, and information from their driver's license that includes a unique identifier number. Um, and if you want your social securities, then get that too. Social security number for $20. That is wild. It's crazy to me, the driver's license stuff. So I, this week I registered a couple of vehicles uh, in, in the state and I've been getting mail over and over and over again. And it's it's like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like a phishing email, but it, it's in, re- in the sale mail about my extended warranty and stuff like that. They make it look like it's coming from the department of motor vehicles. Um, and it makes it look like, you know, it's official mail, but how are these, if I have to give my vehicle and my, and my information to the, the local vehicle department in order to legally drive my vehicles, how is then, are they selling that information so quickly? to these guys that that now are sending me, you know, all this, you know, spam?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would love to know the answer to that as well. Cause I, I would assume that they have some sort of data set or data that's centralized. Now that, but how are they transferring that data across to the partner, right? Whatever partner this was. Or ra- rather, how does that information trickle so quickly down to um, these potential vendors, right?
0: But is is the Department of Motor Vehicles? Is, do they sell information to data brokers or data aggregators?
1: That's that's a great question. I, now I need to. Now I'm curious. I need to look this up because now that you mentioned, I did receive a letter in the mail recently about, uh, and it had my name and it had like uh, one of my vehicles, and it was like an extended warranty thing. And, and nobody, you know, like I, I I have couple. I have several addresses. So the fact that it came to that one specific address is not really tied to me. I was so curious because I think I have one of my um, I have one of my IDs to that location, and I was just so amazed that that I received that mail. But I, I kind of disregarded it quickly. I figured it was something like this. But I didn't really sit down and think about the implications of that.
0: Yeah. So it really comes down to these things called credit headers. So that's really where the information is coming from. And a credit header is defined as personal information from a credit bureau like uh, Experian, Equifax, or TransUnion that has on most adult Americans via the credit card. And so that information is allowed to be sold. And the data trickles down from the credit bureaus who are allowed to sell that information, all the information we just talked about, um, to, to offer it for debt collectors, insurance companies, and law enforcement which i tell you that law enforcement has imposed uh reasons to to not be able to use this information um so like internal like internal rulings at different law enforcement agencies that said they're not they're not going to tap into these credit headers so You know, if you feel strongly about, you know, this information out there being used, um, you know, and don't like it, you know, write to your congressman, write to somebody. Because this is this insane that for fifteen dollars, the information that you have to turn over to have simple things as register your vehicle or have a credit card is legally able to be sold. Mm.
1: Yeah, I wonder if um, our friends across the ponds that have GDPR and all that, if they even have to deal with something like this. Um, I mean, I would assume that 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 would be a violation of of you know European citizens' um, uh, personal information and privacy. It would be a privacy violation. Um, I don't know, man. Like stories like these piss me off. I'll be very honest with you because it's like you know it kind of leads into a conversation that we had earlier, and we could touch on that in a minute after we finish the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 really insane that to, to think that. Regardless of how I maintain my own security measures, my information is still being sold or breached um, along the way. And there's not much I can do to kind of safeguard from that. So It's true. Uh, So,
0: yeah, just to wrap this one up, you know, some of this information is used for swatting. And that's where people place bogus phone calls and and cause the the police to come out like a SWAT team. uh, You know, they'll call in and say that someone's being held at knife point or something like that. Um, sim swapping that we've cut over it a thousand times here. Um, you know that's you know they're using that information. This and also physical violence. If you have stalkers or something like that, um, you just want to target someone's home. They're doing it. So you know I, I think you know thinking about more than I think the FTC is the one that really kind of handles this credit bureau reports and the and the the, um, the credit headers. Reach out to them. Start sending them letters, guys. If you, if we don't like this, this is bullshit. That that information can be sold. Something needs to be done about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's even an act that that basically allowed this for, allowed for this to happen. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, GLBA. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it would be nice to revert that. That would be great.
0: Yeah, let's you know look into see if your congressman or, or representative or or senator they voted for this. Like who who the hell representing us voted for this crap? Keep our information private.
1: I mean. Exactly right. I'm pissed off now, Chris.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're pissed off and we talked we had a conversation before and you want to tell the people why we're pissed off of uh,
1: going into the show? Well, I mean it goes back to what we were just discussing right now, right? Which is and I'm sure many in the audience will agree, you know, we're taking uh, active security measures to safeguard our home networks, our laptops, devices, our personal information, our passwords. Now we have we're using password managers. Um, we're using um, security keys in some cases. Um, we're, we're making a, a really hard effort to make sure that if an attacker is focused on us, anyone in the audience, that it's going to be costly. It's going to take time. It's going to be difficult. It may even be impossible in some cases. So we're putting this all this effort in. We're updating our networks and, and doing all these things. And then we get an email saying, hey, you might be a part of a breach from your third party vendor. And, you know, I'm getting these emails once or twice a week, maybe a month here and there if there's like a lag. Chris, I'm sure you have to receive something similar yourself. Sure. Um, last week, we received an email from one of our listeners where they they got an, an advisory from their network uh, uh, router manufacturer. Um, and so you're sitting here and you're putting all this time and effort to safeguard yourself. But then these third-party vendors that you have to work with in some cases Um, are getting breached. They're not following protocols. They're not listening to their own advice. And then you sit there, you're like, so what the hell is the point if my information is getting leaked anyway through a third party that I can't control? Um, And so, yeah, we were just kind of... (laughs) I wish you guys were a fly on the wall because Chris and I, we just went hard on the fact that that's even a thing. And I would love some sort of protection from that. And I would love if there were some consequences for these vendors that... Are not taking our privacy and our personal information more seriously, right, Chris?
0: Yeah, I mean, like you said, we're putting all this effort in to protect ourselves, and then these other people don't give a shit about our personal data. It just gets squashed. We think, oh, sorry, guys, we you know left this one you know account open, and God forbid it was it was admin, admin, username and password, and uh, sorry, we'll do better next time.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just bizarre, right? Because some of these vendors we're talking about, we're not naming names. But some of these are multi-billion dollar businesses. They have enough budget to mature their security program. And, um, you know, when they're reaching a point where they have too many assets and they have no asset management policy and they're running with systems that are outdated one month plus after the vulnerabilities have been posted in CISA's Kev list or known exploitable vulnerabilities list, that's a problem. And then we have to suffer the consequences of their inaction. So- yeah, I'm surprised that there's not a lot more, um, you know, more uh, vocal complaints against some of these vendors um, or even beyond that. And it would be nice to see if politicians could, you know, actually represent us in this and and start applying some pressure when when necessary, when possible. Because I know, you know, we're in a free market and I get all that, but there's got to be some sort of um, – and I, and I think, you know, in fact, for like publicly traded companies, we've seen the SEC – um, start, you know, putting in some effort into uh, a kind of requiring companies that deal with breaches to report that sooner than later. I think four days or so that we read, right, Chris?
0: Yeah, um, I, I saw an article today, and it was—I just read the headline. I couldn't even stomach to read the the article. It was like, uh, the SEC's news rules put unburdened pressures on uh, CISOs. Who who freaking cares? Do your job, protect the C- networks. Don't just shrug your shoulders and be like, oh, we got breached
1: again. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, just for the audience here, I don't want you guys to think that we're so cynical that we're ignoring the fact that zero days exist because zero days do exist. And unfortunately, in a zero day situation, there isn't much that anyone can do. You can still be pre- preemptive about your security measures. Yeah, go ahead. some people can.
0: The people that rush the 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 software to, to market and don't test it themselves, don't do any security testing when you're rust- when you send in a, a device out or a software fix out. You know, when and then these zero days are found in it. Now, again, you can't find them all, but so many businesses are rushing their their product to market with no security testing. Oh yeah.
1: And you know that's that's just bizarre. We're in 2023, ladies and gentlemen. We're not in the year 2000 when the security industry was first starting, where nobody cared if you got a defacement. Because back then, when you got hacked, someone put a funny little image on your the front of your page of your website, and that's it. That was all there is. Things have changed.
0: I don't I don't even remember the last defacement. I missed defacements.
1: Remember those? <laughs> yeah, those were those were funny. Some of them were hilarious, bro. <laughs> I remember when the, when the New York Times got hacked in the, in the mid-90s by hacking for girlies. That was a big one. There was even a kid from Canada. I think he compromised Amazon.com. He was like 12 years old or something. That was a different era. But you don't hear in that story where I said, hey, the 12-year-old broke into Amazon and stole all your personal information and sold it on, you know, on IRC. Um, you know, Things have changed. And it's time to really take security serious. Um, and if you're a multi-billion dollar business, and you have no control over your assets, and that's a major problem. You need to rethink your strategy.
0: Let me tell you a funny story. Let's, let's, just, let's get out of the anger mode and the bitching mode. This is Hector pissed off, all right? I remember that. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this is a funny story. So back in the day of web defacements, so we were dealing with a hacking, a hacking crew of a bunch of juvenile kids. This was in the FBI. Um, you probably know them. You, uh, you, you, you probably, we've talked about them before. I'm not going to mention them here. I'm not going to give them any, uh, but you, you definitely know who they are. And they took, like, some stupid-ass, like, HTML page and just made a, a stupid graphic and all that with their hacker name and all that, in the, and they, they put it in their browser. They opened it up, and, like, what it, back. I don't even have Chrome back in the day, I guess, it, Internet Explorer.
1: Yeah.
0: And then they just went up into the URL bar and, hit F, and typed in FBI.gov <laughs> and then took a screenshot of it and sent it to, like, the upper-ups, the FBI, like they defaced FBI.gov. They didn't. They didn't like they didn't hit enter. They just it just said fbi.gov in the browser, but it's just their stupid web page in the in the screen. Are you serious, bro? Wow. And that trickled down to us in the squad. And we're like, this doesn't look right. I don't believe this did it. And <laughs> our supervisor, like, he was kind of a horse's ass. And he was running around all bent out of shape about this because it came down to his desk. Uh, and we're like, dude, they this I, I could do this too. And then, like, I look, I just defaced whitehouse.gov, and I, I showed him how I did it, and he goes, Oh, my God. And was like, That's why there's no records. So I was like, so wait, you guys knew there was, no, there was no server records of any of this stuff, but you think somehow they defaced it and we, we can't see it? Like, they're blocking us out of our own server? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was ridiculous.
1: Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I get it. That, that was ridiculous. But, I mean, you do have investigations in your name, so I'm sure somebody somewhere had to re- investigate that, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, but for it to come down to us was was really upsetting.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, man, it was a different era, but the fact is that some of these breaches are happening the same exact way, the same way I would when I was a bad guy. And again, folks, I'm not glorifying any of this. but back when I was a bad guy, I was the adversary. Some of the methods that I used to break into systems back then are still the same methods that are being used today. And so the fact that we're we're constantly seeing data breaches over and over and over again is just so it's so bizarre to me. But I get it though, right? Like I understand, look, I I I do with clients all the time that either have a legacy environment from, you know, 15 years ago. I get that. It's going to cost them probably an arm and a leg to replace that environment and move forward. I get that as well. I also get that some, some companies, you know, they're constantly pushing custom applications out as part of their business model. I get that as well. But, you know, you have to reach a point where you're going to say, well, you know, we got, we got our applications hacked four or five times in the last five years. That's not that great. Um, and it's affected, you know, half a minute of our customers. Okay. Now we need to think about, maybe we need to bring in like a DevOps security manager or something to help us with deployment, right? Whatever. Um, but if you continue as you are and you're still getting breached, I don't want to mention any specific names. Um, there's definitely, uh, an issue in your environment in your culture, maybe, um, or maybe you know, you're know you not taking security as serious as you as, as you are.
0: All right, pissed off, Hector. Let's go on to the next story.
1: <laughs> so, All right,
0: let's do it. You're a true New Yorker. You've lived there most of your life. I, I was transplanted there for work and stayed for quite a long time. Uh, so this next story hits us both a little hard because we're both New York City subway riders. The title of it is, I tracked an New York City subway riders' movements with an MTA feature. And MTA is the people who runs the New York City subway. So... Um, this guy found a feature, uh, in the software online, um, and was able to figure out how the rider, where they, so in the New York city subway, you swipe in, you don't have to swipe out like the DC subway, you swipe in and you swipe out and it charges you for how far you went. Really? Um, That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's,
0: the cost is the distance you traveled, not just you enter the system In the New York city subway, it's one cost. You get in there and you can go anywhere it goes. You could, you could ride around it all day if you wanted uh for the same price
1: i've done that i've just sat on the subway train and rode it for hours but god really yeah man it's fun dude you just chill you just relax oh you know it. it is what it is my friend ilwan
0: one time fell asleep on it and ended up out in uh, coney island so he's uh, nice he didn't get robbed did he no he says sleep i say i say passed out or you know <laughs> yeah whatever whatever it may be so sure big big shout out to Ilwan for that one um but anyways they found a flaw in here where you could simply just put in a credit card number um and obviously from the last story above we found that you can get anyone's credit card number for merely 15 uh and you can find out all the swipes they went to in the last seven days uh kind of a scary thought isn't it hector
1: yeah, no, it is a scary thought. It's, it's definitely an information breach. This is not a good thing. It's, it's not what you're expecting when you're part of this ecosystem. You, you're putting a lot of money into the MTA, for example, as a writer, um, and the prices keep going up. The one thing you don't want to do is be tracked as you're traveling across the city, doing what it is, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and I got to say, big shout out to the researcher and 404 Media began together and put together this disclosure. Um, I also like the fact that they reached out to the MTA security team um, and uh, and we have an update. The update is that it seems the feature has been disabled as of today. So a big shout out to these people for for kind of you know uh, not only disclosing it, but telling us what was going on. And of course, Big shout out to MTA for kind of dealing with this oversight. There really is.
0: I'm a less of a shout out to MTA. I'm going to keep my shout outs only to the researcher uh, and to 404 Media because they reached out to MTA and MTA was like, well, what are you going to do? People want to do this. Um, You know, this story has been out for a few days. And then finally today they, they figure out how to fix it. I mean, it's an easy fix. Put a pin or a password in. That's literally all they had to do is put a pin or a password on that only you knew about. And it would, it would fix it. But they didn't want to do that. They let this flaw be out there for days and days and days. And people think, well, who cares if you're tracking which subway? Well, in New York, you can figure out kind of where someone lives. You can find, you can figure out that we're kind of creatures of habit. Uh, if we have a full-time job, we're going to leave the house at a certain time of day. Uh, and so you can find, you, if I'm a stalker, I can find someone. Oh, they're normally in this station at this time of the day. I can find out when they're not at home. If I know they live by themselves, guess what? I can spend 15 bucks and get their address, and then I can log in here, and I can find out when they leave for work every day and then go to their house. I think you would have made a great uh, criminal mind at some point. Well, you time. have to. I mean, if you're going to yeah. hunt criminals, you have to have a criminal mind. That's true. That's true. So, you know, but, they, you know, the MTA just kind of like shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it's convenient. People want to be able to look at their ride history. Well, my, my username and password should not be my credit card information. That's crazy. I wonder if it's even, it even was even like typed in in the clear. I wonder if they they had some, a secure connection on this stuff.
1: Listen, brother. At this point, I, I wouldn't doubt it. And you know what? The way API security is these days, and we've talked about that in the past, I'm sure you could have automated and enumerated and brute forced every possible number combination without rate limiting or throttling. And you probably could have doxed half of New York City, you know, with this uh, with this feature. Well, I'm glad it's fixed, but no shout out for me for the MTA because I'm no big I fan. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I give them a shout out just for fixing it finally, even though it took some time. But and, uh, and and if anybody from MTA is listening, can you please stop raising the prices? Come on, man. Got to. <laughs> T- times are hard. <laughs> got to raise the prices. Things are expensive.
0: Dollar yeah. isn't worth what it, what it used to be. True. True. So another big uh, data breach this week, Hector. Paramount Pictures, the Paramount Global. Um, which is owns just about probably half of Hollywood or at least a third of it. Uh, big security breach for them.
1: Yeah, this was a tough one. It seems like there was uh, some attackers had gained access to their systems um, not that long ago, between May and June of 2023. Um, and it seems like these attackers may have gotten a bunch of information on about 100 individuals. I'm assuming those are employees, maybe contractors, because um, the numbers seem pretty low. If this was like Paramount+, Plus, like the streaming service, it could have been in the millions.
0: Yeah, I'm going to guess it's employees. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They got social security numbers, birthdays, data bursts, uh, government-issued stuff. Um, But what was strange to me in reading this is the announcement was made by, like, the president of Nickelodeon or something like that. It was some some sort of strange connection to Nickelodeon. And then in this guy's release, he's like, oh, yeah, and by the way, uh, Nickelodeon had an attack back in July where we lost 500 gigabytes worth of documents. Wow. (laughs) By the way. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Also, this happened. We lost <laughs>
1: <laughs> we lost half a terabyte of information. Listen, it's um, <laughs> I don't know. I think today is, this, you know, is is the episode on breaches and, and us just ranting about it? Because this is this another one where. Well, the whole the whole nonchalant, like, oh, oh, yeah,
0: guys. So oh, no big deal. It, you know, it wasn't my data. It was all of yours.
1: Yeah. Oh, it happens. You know, <laughs> shrug, wink, wink. like. Come on, guys. Um, Now, the the concerning part, of course, obviously, Nickelodeon is a kids' network, so we don't know what was taken from there. Um, Hopefully, it wasn't, you know, personally identifying information or credentials or anything related to any of the kids that go to the websites, but um, a breach is a breach. So now with the SEC rules in place, I'm assuming Paramount probably had to disclose this breach um, to the SEC as well. I didn't look into it. I'm not sure if the SEC is actually publishing those, um, those, those, those K forms yet, but it would be interesting to see if there's a way to automate, um, assuming they, they ever released those forms, to automate maybe maybe a Twitter bot or something that's able to track breaches as they're been disclosed. Uh, that's a side note, but um, yeah, interesting stuff.
0: Hackers campaign brute force Cisco VPNs to breach networks. Uh-oh, Ooh. Hector, uh-oh. uh-oh. I, again, you know what, this, the, uh, let's get to the end of the story first. Okay. (laughs) Lazy ass installments. And then they got breached. All it comes down to. Anyways, targeting Cisco uh, appliances, uh, their adaptive security appliances, um, SSL VPNs, and credential stuffing and brute forcing. So, credential stuffing, guys, that's where they take usernames and passwords and just try a shitload of different passwords. Uh, Maybe they found like some sort of grouping of, you know, Hector at, blah, 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 and his password on the dark web, and they tried that um, or tried variants of that same password or, or you see some sort of pattern. Like instead of using A's, he uses fours for the word password. Um, you know, will try variants of that. And then brute forcing is literally just trying every password over and over and over again. Um, and so that these guys are, are going after these, uh, Cisco appliances. So it's kind of crazy Hector. Um, it seems to be, so they said doing the research that they're going after lapses in security defenses, lapses, it's fucking incompetence or Stop. lack thereof. Exactly. Um, but they're, they're going after ones that did not enforce multi-factor authentication. All mm-hmm. right. I'm pissed off already. You're pissed off already. <laughs> Give me your pissed off thoughts.
1: Yes. So I've dealt with maybe hundreds of clients that have Cisco appliances and these, some of these appliances go back 10, 12 years. Um, a lot of, so you know, I always make the joke that back then, if you would gotten to cybersecurity, you know, 12, 15 years ago, the big rage back then was, hey, we're going to sell you an appliance and here's a device and you, you pay us for the subscription. You pay us for hosting it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the service, right? So you're paying three or four bills. Uh, and then you, you would just connect the appliance to your network, and it would act as some sort of, in this case, a VPN. Um, over time, they've changed that business model, and now they just give you a software package. You can deploy it on some sort of machine, uh, maybe a virtual machine, and it'll act as, you know, what it is, in this case, a VPN. Now, a lot of those um, deployments, the older deployments, um, this was before M- MFA or multi-factor authentication was common, Right. So all you needed to connect to one of these corporate networks through this SSL VPN service was just a username and password. Now, over time, Cisco came out with plugins or extensions that would allow you to add a PIN or RSA security key or MFA of some sorts. Okay? Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these technologies um, have been forgotten. I've seen customers where they have a, a, a Cisco ASA or SSL VPN set up, but now they also have like a, a Zscaler Zero Trust installation uh, or set up, and they've forgotten that they have, they still have those old Cisco VPNs connected directly to their internal flat network. So what does this mean for corporations that have been around for quite some time or corporations that bought used um, appliances and just connected to their network for remote access? What it means is that if they do not have multi-factor authentication or other mechanisms in place, That attackers will look for leaked credentials um, or breach credentials for your organization and try them out against your SSL VPN portal. And once you get one successful credential, that's it. They are in. That's how scary it is. And I'm surprised that this hasn't been going on more commonly. I'm even surprised this this is even a story. But it seems like there's been a big uptick on this specific attack vector.
0: I will say one of the things they they, uh, mentioned in the article is that they they were afraid that these operators uh, might be leveraging an undisclosed vulnerability within the Cisco VPN software that could allow the attackers to bypass authentication um, on systems that didn't have MFA. But you're just saying that's maybe that's it, but they don't even have to. Uh, because credentials are so easy to buy out there or so easy to find in a dump or people reusing their passwords that maybe this is, but that's giving people too much uh, credit. They're probably just using these these stolen credentials and, and can get in that way because uh, the security people aren't putting the MFA on.
1: Well, think about it like this. if and, and those Cisco appliances are very spread across the globe. If someone has a zero day for this specific service, They literally have access to millions upon millions of devices online today. Um, So, yeah, at that point, password security is irrelevant. But in this particular case, it seems like the threat actors were using a Windows device to, you know, brute force or password stuff a bunch of VPN services um, or SSL VPN services. Um, And again, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these are bit dated. They've been around for quite some time. I bet you some of these these services or services have been online for like five years plus or more. And, um, you know, and they just sit there and they sit there and wait for a login attempt.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. It looks like some of the successful attacks, they just use simple names like admin, guest, Cisco to test, printer, security, inspector, Cali. I mean, th- those are those are names that should not be usernames in your guys' networks.
1: Yeah. Well, well think about it like this, right? A lot of these VPN services should be connected to a domain. So if you have accounts like Admin, Guest, Cali, Cisco that are, that are, you know, that are, um, are, are accessible externally through this service, then what that means is if an attacker or rogue insider were to get access to the internal network, they could still also leverage these weak credentials on the internal um, um, piece, right? So yeah, bad password hygiene, uh, bad enforcement of probably Active Directory with these services, um, lack of MFA, uh, you name it, uh, I'm not surprised. But the one thing I'll tell you folks out there, if if this story resonates with you, if you know for a fact that you're using an external VPN appliance and there's no MFA, you should probably head out tomorrow, um, not tomorrow, but Monday morning. No, um, screw it. Tomorrow. Go out tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Do it tonight. <laughs> Send an email to your security staff or your uh, IT manager or anybody involved and say, hey, by the way, uh, what was the last time we ordered these VPN services or... Um, Can we enforce MFA on all incoming connectors moving forward? Um, I just noticed I could log in with just my my domain user and password. That's not a good sign, guys. That's it. That's all it's going to take to start a ripple, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Simple fixes for this one, guys. It's pretty easy. Deactivate default accounts. Get rid of them. There shouldn't be admin account. There shouldn't be guest account. That shouldn't be out there on your your VPNs. There's no need for that. Uh, Block brute force attempts. People can't log. They can't remember their password after two, three attempts. They're locked out. They can't locked do it. Can't, can't mm-hmm. do it. Um, and an insured MFA is enrolled for all users. Um, I don't care, you know, if the CEO of the company hates looking, you know, up some number on his phone or something like that. Screw it. All accounts. All they need, like Hector said. Hector said it beautifully a second ago. All they need is one account and you're pwned. That's it. That's right. All right, Hector, my blood pressure is way up now. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what's going to get it down. Now, this is this last story is is great advice. So we'll put the link in the description, guys. Um, it's, a, it's a GitHub, and people are keeping a list, an ongoing list that started in September, the end of September of 2017. So nice. what are we talking about here? Six years now? Wow. Yeah. Way to go, guys. Six years at the Good end job. of this month of how to opt out of uh, Data Broker um they give you times of how do you log into different search engines if you've ever been doxxed and you want your docs taken down they send you links on how to get you out of there the people search sites um how to get yourself out of there all of them um they have you know probably a hundred different sites on how to get your way out of it And they do talk about you know some of them can be a pain in the ass um, some of the information requires that you click on links sent by email. Some of them are even automated calls with a four-digit number you have to give in. You got to jump through a lot of hoops um, to do this, but it is a way that you can go through and take some of your data out of there so data brokers can't get to it.
1: It's a great repository. I would recommend you reading through it because it does have some good information, uh, not only about how to deal with your privacy and, and your data, but it gives you suggestions, suggestions that Chris and I have already given you. But it's always good to have a reminder. Um, things like, you know, freezing your credit, which would prevent creditors from accessing your credit report. Um, and then you remember, it's not just Equifax, right? It's Equifax and Experian and TransUnion, TransUnion, um, Innovis and, and check Marks, right? Or Check System. Sorry, um, there's a lot of credit bureaus that that you know can provide your information, and you can set credit freezes by. Um, accessing their their um, their credit-free section. Um, but yes, definitely take a look at this. It's very useful. Big shout-out to the guys here, the whole team that have been keeping this updated for all these years.
0: So, yeah, guys, find it in the links. It's, uh, you know, it'll be useful. Um, there's paid services. You can do the paid services. They're are great at what they do. Um, mm-hmm. But if you wanted to give it a shot, doing some of yours, you know, uh, you know, I really check this out and see what you can do. That's right. So, Hector... Listener questions. If you guys want to reach out to us and we love your listener questions, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Um, somebody reached out to us through our merchandise sell site today. Um, and you know, Hector, it was strange. You know what they asked for? What? More guests. They want to have more guests on Hacker in the Fed to hear the perspective. Get the, the perspectives. hell out of here! I swear. Um, I wrote them back. You know, uh, you know, guys, the guest shows are great. Hector and I love having guests on in different perspective. I'll tell you for a fact right now, though, the numbers don't don't reflect. Uh, not everybody downloads those shows. Not everybody listens to those shows. Um, you know, for that's we, weird, right? We appreciate the love that that they love hearing from you and I, Hector. Um, so you know. Um, I, I will probably do more shows. I told this guy, we're going to kind of do some hybrid shows with guests, have a guest on for, you know, 30 minutes and then do, you know, our normal show for 30 to 45 minutes and kind of mix them together. And so that's how we'll handle it in the future. But you know, if you guys want to reach us, that's a long story short, you can reach us on our merch site, but much better if you send us the uh, information or questions or just things you want to talk to us about at questions at hackerinthefed.com. So our first question is from, uh, Nadia. Nadia writes in, hi, guys. uh, You're my favorite podcast out right now. Well, thank you, Nadia. I hope we're your favorite podcast of all time, not just right now. Great content and chemistry. That's what we're known for. Um, Question for Chris. What made you decide to stop working for the FBI? All right, Nadia. I get this question a lot, um, and I don't really normally answer it publicly um, because I don't like to say anything that negative reflects on the FBI. I love the FBI, um, when I reached a point in my educational career and, 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 um, beyond that, even going to work for the FBI was remotely a chance. I was thrilled. I always thought that being an FBI special agent was unattainable. I didn't think I could ever do that. Um, I never saw it as my place. Um, but you know, people pushed me in that direction and a little bit of support for my family. And I was throwing my app in and next thing you know, I find myself uh, in Quantico, um, working and, and learning how to, to be an FBI agent. Towards, by the way, Chris, yeah, if, you
1: don't, if you don't mind, I, I would have to say from personal experience, you were a great special agent. With the
0: Thank FBI, you. So.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that, Hector. That's very nice of you. So I
0: reached the point in my FBI career, I had just worked with Hector for a while, and then after that, we took down Silk Road. Um, Silk Road gave me a little notoriety um, to the point where I, they brought me down to DC and I sat with the director of the FBI and I gave a case briefing to everyone, all management and cyber. Um, so SSAs all the way up to the director, um, sat in a room and I got to give a presentation. It was just a huge honor. Uh, and then I sat with the director and talked with him for a while. Um, and so, you know, I was red, white, and blue and whatever the FBI color is, I was them all the way. Um, my next career move was actually to go to DC. So I had a family in New York. Uh, most guys in New York that do their DC time, they travel back and forth. They spend the week down in DC and then they come back on the weekends. I didn't really want to be a part-time dad. That really wasn't what I wanted to do. And so, you know, if if that wasn't for me going down to DC and making that next step in the career, then I would just stay as an investigator uh, all my life uh, in New York, which is fine. Uh, I love being an investigator. To be honest, I didn't want to really get in management. I don't really like doing management. But, um, you know, if you want to get paid more, if you want to go up the, the pay scale, then you have to become a, a manager. Um, so so that was sort of my next path. I didn't really want to be a manager. I didn't want to travel. Um, and then I hit a couple roadblocks in the FBI that I thought were kind of nuts. Um, I, Like I said, I did Silk Road, um, and part of Silk Road was going out to California and arresting Ross. And then when we came back, we went through Ross's computer, and we found out who the admins were that was helping Ross. Um, there was a guy in, in um, Australia, um, and I sent my squad mate, Mitch. He went down to Australia and arrested that guy. Uh, there was a guy in Ireland, and he and I sent Ilwan over there. He arrested that guy. There was another guy down in, uh, in Virginia, just below Richmond. And so I went to go arrest that guy. Weird story with that guy. Um, um, so again, I had got a little notoriety after Silk Road. And when I arrested this guy, he's in handcuffs. He goes, oh my God, is that really you? Or is that really, really you? And so he was like, it was starstruck. And I was like, that was my first like, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe, maybe, maybe arresting people might be tough now. Um, but anyways, on my way down to Richmond, so one of the rules in the FBI is that you can't deviate, deviate from your direct path um you you're driving an fbi car and you can't go you know off someplace to go meet a relative or anything like that and that's true i understand the rules um but on my way down i had extra time so i stopped at uh the fbi cyber headquarters to meet with you know uh, milan was there we talked about milan earlier um my old boss chris stangle he was there and we you know, just want to go around and talk to the cyber guys you know i just had this big case you know silk road just the had just happened like three weeks earlier, you know, cover of the newspapers and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I went and met with Milan and then went down to Richmond. And a couple days later, we arrested this guy and I went back to New York. I get back to New York, you know, and I'm, yeah, my head's probably pretty big because I just had this big case, big takedown. And I got called upstairs to my boss's 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 office. And he goes, um, hey, uh, I think we might have to write you up. Because you deviated you deviated from your path. I was like, what? Where did I I I I didn't deviate from my path. He's like, yeah, you went to we got reports that you went to FBI headquarters. I was like, yeah, I was driving through DC and I and I stopped there. They're like, yeah, that's deviation. I was like, Are you kidding me? I went to FBI. Like, I couldn't believe it. And so it, it was just you know that started the ball rolling. Where I was like, "Man, maybe this isn't for me." And I had gotten a nice offer to leave the the FBI. You know, a nice, a really, really big salary bump that that helps and all that. Um, But again, I thought I'd be retired, gold watch and everything from the FBI. I never thought. And then that day when they were like, they're gonna write me up for driving to FBI headquarters. um, I was like, this isn't right. I, I don't quite understand this one. Um, And you know, so. Uh, It started my mindset down that and the offers, you know, and so it kind of ate away at me. And so, you know, there was a lot of other factors, but and I don't like telling that story because, again, I don't like doing anything that negatively reflects the FBI because I loved the FBI so much. Um, I don't think the FBI of today is the same as the one I was in there um, from what I hear from people. um, But that's a different story for when
1: microphones aren't on, Hector. (laughs) Well, it's understandable. And I would probably feel the same way. Um, you know, it's it's not like you went to a strip club or you did something that was, you know, uh, uh, unlike what an FBI agent supposed to be doing. Um, and 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 you know, we've seen stories where like it's like a random, remember that uh, we well, cut this out, but remember that the FBI agent that went to like a party and he he did a, a backdrop and his you know his gun fell, or whatever.
0: Oh yeah, you no, know, he was at a nightclub and the gun fell out of the back of his pants. He went to pick it up and shot somebody else on the night fl- on, the, on the, oh, the dance
1: floor. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> so. <laughs> When you see stuff like that, and you're like, "Come on, guys," I went to the headquarters. Like, I, I can understand your frustrations with that, and I completely get it. So, and, I- and thank you for sharing that story because, you know, it it it's it's not it's not a put down towards the FBI, and I hope you understand that. Uh, but it goes to show that you know a lot of the stuff that you got that you probably went through is stuff that we see in a corporate environment all the time. There are times when when I have to speak to a client, and and we're getting along very well, um, and the client wants to hang out with me and do stuff, and I'm like, I have to be very careful. Because I don't want to upset like the salespeople who think that I'm probably trying to steal their their lead or whatever it is. Um, So I get it completely. And um, and by the way, you know, I would say uh, um, it's I'm sorry you had to go through that because I think that if you would have stood there, you definitely would have retired with your gold shield and you would have been, you know, awesome at it. So it is what it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I miss the FBI, but you know, like I said, I, I'm very happy with my life. I'm very grateful for all the things that have come my way. Um, and so no complaints. There you go. That's right. So Kevin writes in, uh, Chris is always right. Again, Kevin, <laughs> that's why you're the second uh, question in, uh, in our questions because you, you titled it correctly. Um, <laughs> I love your show and hope to continue to grow. How hard would it be to land a remote entry job, soccer, or IT support with a felony arrest on my record? The arrest was related to an aggravated assault of a family member. I was never charged, and the case was dismissed. I'm currently working on getting my arrest expunged. Should I wait to get it expunged, or should I apply for jobs anyways? I really want to enter a cybersecurity field, and I'm currently attending a trade school for cybersecurity. Uh, thank you in advance for your response. Looking forward to hearing the next episode. Well, Kevin, you made it on the next episode, so uh, congratulations. Uh, I would go ahead. Kevin, you were, this was arrest. You were not charged. Uh, the case was dismissed. Uh, people, you know, are arrested with no, you know, the, the, the system doesn't work that way. You have to be found guilty of it in order to, uh, to be a problem for getting a job or getting like that. Um, you know, sometimes some, a mistake has happened. Uh, cops make arrests that, that aren't any good. You know, again, I don't know all the circumstances for this, but uh, again, it's just an arrest. It's not a conviction
1: yeah that, that's a great question and and i agree with chris here i think you're in a very good position i think you should move forward continue with your career path look at me look at, look at look at this guy right here the guy that's talking i was hacking foreign governments for like at least a decade um you know yes you are in a good place promise you you're in a good place and right now the industry regardless of what direction you're looking at whether it's marketing uh sales uh sock uh, it infrastructure whatever. There are millions of jobs open. You're you're gonna be fine. Now, even if you were indicted, and Chris, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but even if you were indicted or or convicted, he could still apply for like a certificate of release of relief, right? And that would help him, I think. Um well it would help him in some circumstances. But
0: uh the fact that Yeah, just so people understand terminology. So an arrest comes, uh arrest is uh, a police officer or some sort of law enforcement agent has probable cause. He's done a, an investigation, and he believes there's probable cause that you you may have committed a crime. An indictment or you know, the facts put it together by a grand jury. The grand jury decides, yes, something happened here uh, that, that is, breaks the law. So that's the next level. Uh, and then a conviction comes after that after you have a trial and then a conviction. An arrest is is, is nothing. It's, it's just a police officer, a law enforcement officer, using their skills and knowledge to say something something happened here and this should go to court. So uh, again, it's it's the lowest of levels. Uh, you know the, the you know and it, again, it could be completely wrong. Um, you could be falsely accused of it. Um, you know again, if you want to have it expunged from your record, great, keep moving forward, but don't let that slow slow your way in your career path. That's right. So. Next question comes in from Dustin. Dustin's a listener. He, uh, he, listens, he listens to the show early. Uh, Dustin will hit me up on early Thursday mornings some of things he likes in the show and doesn't like in the show. Um, and Dustin, uh, you know, we do good. We do the bad. Um, so Dustin writes, regarding Samir's email from last week. I actually appreciate the two different mic effects. Uh, podcasts aren't the same as radio. We know you guys aren't in the same studio. Wait, Dustin, you knew that Hector and I are not in the same place oh, right now. Oh, man, we're doxed. Oh, damn it. He must have paid fifteen bucks to figure that one out. For that we were docked. <laughs> uh, to me, immersive means bringing the listeners on a ride uh, with the the speakers, and the listeners and the speakers are distributed. In that way, I think the mics provide an immersive, uh, distributed uh, experience. Seriously, though, the new mic sounds great, Hector. Uh, and he says, pound boo Phineas. Uh, yeah, boo Phineas, anti Phineas. And so, Dustin, uh, thanks for uh, the shout out. Thanks for the support. Um, Dustin actually is a podcaster, Hector. He oh, no he, he runs the podcast, the Nun Taken podcast. Guys, check out the show. Um, I've been on the show twice. I love doing their show. These guys are great to talk to. Um, I think he wants to have you and I on in the near future.
1: Oh, I'm down, dude.
0: Totally. Perfect. So Dustin, uh, follow up Hector's down. He and I will get on and let's just do a fun show. So they talk about fun stuff, Hector. So they'll get a little, um, a little bit into our conversation before the show. Those guys will ask us about it and we'll get into it. And the, (laughs) the four of us just have a fun conversation over, over there.
1: I'm with it, bro. Especially if we're not talking anything technical, I think we're fine. I think we'll
0: have fun. Yeah, we'll have fun. So, Dustin, thanks for uh, reaching out. And Samir, thank you for reaching out. I don't, we don't mind the criticism. We don't want to hear back from you guys. So, next one, Josh from Kansas writes Hey, guys, first and foremost, I love, he, all caps, he loves the podcast and you guys' backstory. Hector, I want to give you praise for doing what was right as a parent for those girls, uh, as a parent slash step parent of six um that is very awesome to hear and you should step up for
1: those girls that's awesome thank you josh appreciate you
0: a little bit of backstory for me i work in a pretty big aerospace machine shop in kansas uh, i transitioned to it from a quality inspector for machine aircraft parts that's a pretty cool job too there josh that sounds really cool <laughs> yeah. yeah working in aerospace and uh, aircraft parts is is pretty pretty far from what hector and i do and we're a little jealous <laughs> on that one um yeah I've been fascinated with cybersecurity from the time I was about 12 years old, uh, but never really had a chance or a life uh, to explore any of it. I understand the basics of it for the most part, uh, but lack the technical knowledge that most cybersecurity professionals have. Need a computer to work? I'm your guy. Need a firewall rule or a network to rebuild? No clue. Um, My company decided they wanted to become CMMC level two compliant. And so the guys don't know what that is. CMMC is the standard to interact with DOD in the United States, the Department of Defense. So Department of Defense has a new cybersecurity um, standard that companies that need to be at a certain level in order to deal with certain, certain information, information sharing with the DOD, or even selling products to the DOD. Um, and it bases on, it's based on the classification level. So, you, so in order to do certain things, you have to be at a certain level of CMMC within your, with a company to, for the DOD. So and they have tasked me to be the head of the cybersecurity program. Needless wow. to say, yeah, exactly. Big move for Josh. Needless mm-hmm. to say, I'm, uh, it's been like <laughs> drinking out of a fire hose. I have learned a lot, but I feel not enough. I have only been in IT world for a little over a year. And now I'm guessing my question is, do you guys uh, think that it is possible for someone with little experience to get a company CMMC compliant? Uh, I have no training and I'm kind of learning as I go. Anyways, great job on the podcast. You guys do have a faithful listener for life. Uh, Keep up the excellent work. Well, thanks, Josh. Um, Yeah, so I've been through CMMC training at our last job. um, When I worked at uh, my last place, we did the training in order to go and check if companies were compliant and help them become compliant. I definitely think you have the skill set, Josh, to do this. Um, CMMC should hold your hand, um, but your company should be much more supportive of you for any training that you need. Um, you know, they should send you to whatever training if, if they want to reach this, and they have to reach it. Um, i you know, being a manufacturer in the aerospace industry, they're going to they have to be CMMC compliant to deal with the Department of Defense. So you should be asking for whatever trainings you need to get there. I, I definitely think you can do it. What are your thoughts, Hector?
1: Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I have a lot of clients that come to me, come to my organization to to prepare themselves for CMMC, to see if they're compliant in many ways. There is, like you said before, it's kind of tiered, right? You have like level one all the way to advanced progressive level five, and CMMC stands for Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. It's definitely required if you want to be a federal contractor or even have access to unclassified information or, or, or work within the defense industrial base Sector, the fact that he works in the aerospace means that he's probably somewhere along the supply chain. So, yes, his organization has to get to that point if they want to continue working as part of that industry. Now, I've seen a lot of the CMCC materials, I've seen some of the policies and, um, you know, content around it. I think you'll be fine, Josh. Um, definitely do what Chris said. There is training for this, there is a lot of documentation, there are books. Uh, there's just so much resources out there that if you need it, tell your company, hey, I might need, we might need to make an investment into X, Y, and Z. It's not going to be much, but it's going to help us um, reach that level two that we really desire. Um, and finally, don't be afraid to uh, to look into you know certain vendors. There are vendors that once you guys get to a certain point, they can come in and validate. Some may, may be expensive, others might be cheaper. I definitely recommend looking around and you will find somebody that's going to help you confirm whether or not you've reached that point. Now, once you've reached that point, you can go for the certification. And I think that you'll be fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's not, it's not as complex as some of the other frameworks that I've seen and policies. So again, I agree with Chris. I think you'll be okay.
0: So the next listener reached out. They didn't want us to use their name. So we'll just call them anonymous for now. So anonymous says, thanks for your podcast. I really hope that you guys continue to produce the great quality content that you have so far. Uh, With that said, he has a couple questions. What are your thoughts on corporations holding repositories of O days, zero days uh, for both their own products and their competitors, and then reporting them in a way to influence customers' decisions for purchases? This seems unethical to me. What are your thoughts, Hector?
1: Yeah. I mean, depending on where you stand ethically, it would be problematic. I myself am not a fan of any organization sitting on zero-day vulnerabilities. There was a point when I had access to zero-day vulnerabilities as a bad guy. And I understand how uh, effective they can be and how vulnerable folks are. And so once, I would say once, um, those zero days and proof of concepts and research started to become monetized and they were being sold back and forth like uh, like weapons um, between governments or between you know private sector co- companies or corporations – You know, I I myself and a bunch of folks have really felt that it was wrong. So, yeah, I am not a big fan of it, but really there are no laws and rules around this. It's not regulated. It's not a regulated part of the industry. So it's going to be business as usual. It's going to continue moving forward. But I agree. It does seem unethical, um, and I'm not a fan of it, but it is what it is. That's kind of where we're at today.
0: Isn't Zero Day, by definition, a vulnerability
1: in a product that the manufacturer doesn't know about? That's exactly right. So, so how can you have an O day in your own product? I mean, that's a great point, right? But let's think about it. Imagine if you have, if you are aware of a backdoor mechanism in your product and you don't, you're not informing or fixing. You should be fixing.
0: It should be fixing. Like I, that, I they, agree.
1: Some companies have not done that. Some companies have shipped products for tens of years, or for many years, not tens, but many years with these backdoor um, logins that researchers have found much later on. And the consequence of that is that you have thousands or tens of thousands of infected devices out there that are kind of waiting for someone to log in with that special combination. Um, It is problematic. We've seen it with all the big vendors. Um, And so, yes, the zero day for their own product may not be the right way to put it here, but I understand what, what, you know, Anonymous uh, is asking. Um, Now, as for, like, if you are a business, a manufacturer, and you're aware of a zero day in another manufacturer's uh, products, and you're using that to um to influence how users purchase the products then yeah you might be getting yourself into a potential lawsuit think about it like this if you both companies are publicly traded and you're aware of a zero day in your com- competition's product and you do like a like you know a sneak this or you leak it or whatever it is now you're affecting the economy of that pro- that corporation and its investors now you're affecting the investors directly you're putting yourself at, at the at the crosshairs of the SEC. We've seen lawsuits against organizations that have found security vulnerabilities in products. I remember one case. Remember that case with, a, I think it was a St. Jude. They had a, like a pacemaker product. Um, an organization found a vulnerability in the product and tried to do like a press release about it. Those guys got into trouble. It wasn't a walk in the park for them. Um, so, yeah, I'm not a big fan of this stuff either, so. As for, as for ethics, unfortunately, like I said, it's not regulated. So it's going to continue being a thing.
0: Yeah. So Anonymous had another question specifically for you, Hector. Uh, sure. What is Hector's take on all of these groups claiming they are part of Anonymous or acting in their name? Um, it almost seems like when someone claims they are part of Anonymous Hacking Group, these days they are a joke, merely uh, skids, uh, thinking that they are something that they are not.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you have to remember that anonymous, as a concept, um, would imply that everyone is anonymous. Anybody could claim it or claim to be anonymous. This or anonymous that. Um, it, it's, it's, it doesn't really matter, right? There's no, there's no like authority or 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 um, you know or some sort of uh, ruling party that's going to say, okay, these guys are authentic, but these other guys are not. It's just not going to happen. And as for the the fact that there's some skids involved. Skids for for the audience here, script kiddies, also known as like neophytes. I think that's a better word. Um, these are people that are getting into security. They don't really know much, and then they're pretending and specifically to this question here, they're pretending that uh, oh, it's a great example. The screenshot that uh, Chris mentioned earlier with the FBI defacement, FBI.gov defacement, um, that's what this this person is actually asking about. Um, you have anon- you have groups that claim to be anonymous doing those kind of a fake hacks. Um yeah, it, 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 honestly, anybody could be anonymous, so it doesn't really matter. There's nobody that's going to be able to judge them or say, hey, you guys can't do that. Um, so I don't really have an opinion on that, to be honest with you. What I would like, if anything, is for those folks to stop wasting their time with that scene and get into cybersecurity and have a beautiful career and take care of their families. I think that would be a better t- – um, make a, a – I'll say a better use of their time. Rather than screwing around on Twitter and Discord, um, trying to get clout. I agree.
0: So our last question, Rachel. She's uh, Rachel's a college student. I'm not going to say what college she goes to, but uh, I'd love to hear more about what it means to quote impose cost on bad guys, not just identify and catching, but how we think about alternate alternate the ecosystems long term. Uh, in no small part due to Hacker and Fed, I did with some misgivings. Uh, put in an application for a year-long SANS training that starts next weekend. And somehow they failed to throw a, throw out my application. Well, Rachel, congratulations. I'm glad you signed up. I'm glad we can influence you to sign up. Uh, but, Hector, what about her question? Uh, what does it mean to impose costs on bad guys?
1: Yeah, so think about it like this. Let's imagine a ransomware group based out of, I don't know, let's say Italy. And they're pretty successful, but they're in Europe, so they have to they have some concerns about their risk or risk appetite. They don't want to get raided by Interpol or the local authorities. So they, they have a successful ransomware campaign. They're trying to uh, cash out all that, all those millions of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, what have you. Right. But then they realize one thing, um, due to several laws in different countries and requirements from here in the United States. If you try to use like a U.S. exchange, you have to do something called KYC or know your customer. You have to provide passport or state IDs or other personal information. And of course, since the blockchain is public, um, depending on the currency that you're you're working with, law enforcement will eventually find you. They will find your transaction and, and tie it to your exchange account, and then you'll get a knock on the door, right? And they may not be as friendly as Chris, but you get the knock on the door. Now, so what a lot of these groups tend to do is they'll have a successful, um, ransomware campaign. Um, they'll have, you know, a million dollars in cryptocurrency. They want to cash it out, but they can't. So they'll go to, in the case of Italy, the reason, this reason why I bring up Italy is because there was a case that I read last year of a group of bad actors that they went to the Italian mafia and they cashed out some cryptocurrency and they all got raided, including the mafia members. Um, it just blew up in everybody's face. Now with that being said, um, there are risks to dealing with this kind of these kind of funds, and so what the U.S. has done, at least here, is that they they've enforced uh, the KYC law and other and other restrictions that ensure that U.S. exchanges or exchanges that work with the U.S. have to have some sort of KYC policy, meaning registrations uh, um, or or during the registration process, you have to provide identify, identification. That's not the case for the rest of the world. So if you are a bad actor in Russia and you get yourself $20 million in in Bitcoin, you could probably go into the local mafia house and and exchange it for 50% off um, and walk away with $10 million in rubles or whatever it is, um, and you'll probably be okay. And maybe you'll find an exchange in Russia that that won't care about your identity, and they're very happy enough with you exchanging your Bitcoin for something else. Um, So it really depends on where you're at. Uh, For it to really affect you. So imposing costs. So to go even further, um, you know, you probably would have to, in the worst case scenario, completely outlaw cryptocurrency. If that's really what you want to do, then you will effectively or probably kill ransomware entirely. Um, Since, you know, ransomware campaigns require some sort of cryptocurrency payment. If that payment cannot be cashed out or it's not even a thing anymore, then ransomware is not going to be effective. Okay. Um, so what else can you do aside from taking down a global currency, uh, a cryptocurrency? Well, you can start enforcing rules and regulations upon exchanges. And if those exchanges don't want to follow the rules like KYC, then you start to apply pressure by means of sanctions. And then you work with their local governments to apply even more pressure, but it doesn't mean it's going to do anything at the end of the day. So that's as far as you could take it, at least for now, I'm sure with, with time, uh, global governments will figure out a solution uh until the day that all global governments uh, are on the same page it's probably not gonna do much so that's that's my opinion on it
0: yeah Rachel, good luck with all your SANS courses. I'm glad we could help you with that. Uh, I got friends over there. My friend Phil, he runs most of the SANS trainings. My friend Conan just wrote a SANS class. You might be taking his class. So reach out to us uh, on the down low if you need help with any of that stuff.
1: His name is Conan? That's fucking badass, man. He's a federal
0: agent out in Arizona. Yeah, we talked about it last week on the show. Uh, His his son is a a pen tester with a major retailer. Oh, man. That's so So. dope. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. So, uh, Guys, Merchandise. Go to hackerinthefed.com, buy a sweatshirt, buy a t shirt. It really helps the show, help us stay online, pay the bills, pay for everything we need. Uh, Elon just ordered a bunch of new t shirts this week. <laughs> so right. uh, I'll get those out, Elon. Uh, I know you uh, want them quick, probably before the next uh, SpaceX launch. Um, so we'll get to it quickly. So yeah, go to hackerinthefed.com, get yourself some merchandise. We do international shipping um, and uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us at questions at hackerandthefad.com. Love to hear your questions. All the good things. Hector, enjoy your long weekend. And it was great talking to you. I will. You too,
1: my friends. All right. Cheers. Cheers, friend.